welcome to the Freestyle podcast series, bringing you real stories from those living with diabetes. We hear about the challenges they face and hope to provide some inspiration for living your best life. I'm Claudine, and we better make sure our production today is up to scratch, as on this episode, we have Phil Bigwood, a BAFTA-winning TV producer whose job has taken him to some of the biggest sporting events on the planet. Please remember that before making any changes to your diabetes management, discuss these with your healthcare team first. So hi, Phil. Welcome to the Freestyle Podcast Series. It's great to have you with us. Thanks, Claudine. Thank you. So let's start by talking about your type 1 diagnosis. So I believe you were 10 years old. Do you remember much about it? Um, I remember it was a long time ago. It's uh, over 44 years now. Even, you know, despite the fact it's 44 years ago, I do still remember drinking a lot, going to the loo a lot. I can remember feeling tired more often than I sort of would have expected to. One thing that sticks in my mind, um, I can remember a girl in my class at school called Linda, who used to give me her lemon squash drink from her packed lunch each day because I was just so thirsty all the time. One particular lunch, and I actually had her drink in my hand as I walked out of school and my mum was standing there in tears and basically explained to me that we needed to go to hospital straight away. Unbeknown to me, she'd done a urine test and had it checked to the doctors and off I went to Southend Hospital. I was there for 10 days and started to learn about the world of uh, type 1 diabetes from there, really. Wow. And what was it that made your mum kind of think that there was something to test? I'm not sure, really. I think, you know, I she probably heard me getting up in the night and sticking my head underneath the, the tap in the bathroom and things like that. So, I mean, it was it was a shock. I think at age 10, you don't really know any different. And it did take a bit of, bit of getting used to and obviously learning back then about how to do the jabs and all those sorts of things. Big glass syringes and methylated spirits and the smell of this, that and the other. So it was, yeah, it was quite an education. And sort of looking back now, I think, I don't think at the time you quite realised the impact so it's not just the impact on you, but it's the impact on obviously your whole family because we know that a diagnosis of type 1 is a diagnosis for a family unit. How do yeah. you think it affected everybody around you? Looking back now, I, I think it must have had a, a massive effect. As I say, we, we didn't know anybody who had the condition. There was nobody we could ask questions of other than the hospital. And, you know, as I sort of grew up and then got into my teenage years and I was going away and you can imagine sort of like <laughs> lads holidays and nights out and I sort of look back now and think god that must have been so difficult for my mum particularly worrying you know was I going to get back was I going to have a hypo how was it going to be handled and you know I think so sort of, I, I go back again to uh, hospital you know all of the what was available and then when I was age 10 was so different. I can remember being told to practice doing injections um, in an orange. So you'd be given the, the jab in an orange. And then there was, it was on my, like my eighth or ninth day in hospital. And they, my mum was with me and the doctors were doing their rounds. And it happened to be a day when he had all these junior doctors with him. So there was literally a dozen people stood around my bed in the, you know, the kids ward in South End Hospital. And he said, right, today's the day you're doing your first injection. And I'm like, well, you know, and so 
I will, it will live with me forever that, you know, the orange was now my leg, you know, and, um, and it sort of went from there. And I can just remember the look on my mum's face and it must have been a real, real challenge for her. And for my dad, you know, when we used to play football and things like that, he used to manage my football team and making sure I had, you know, sweet drinks and things like that, which I'm sure really did, um, you know, affect them. Yeah, slipping you the extra orange slices at half time. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So you mentioned there about information was quite difficult when you were diagnosed. Nowadays, I guess it's not easier for parents, but there's a wealth of information with the internet and social media. Do you remember leaving the hospital with wads and wads of kind of leaflets and pamphlets that you then had to sit and read? Yeah, I do remember some. I do remember these sort of black and white pamphlets. Inevitably, there was a lot less information around than there, than there is now. And I had um, the consultant at the, the hospital, I'll always remember him, he was um, an Austrian guy called Dr. Lieberschutz um, from Southend Hospital, who was amazing and he was really good. And as you say, he just gave us every bit of information that he had. You know, mostly I was just interested in, you know, what could I eat and drink? I mean, back then there weren't diet drinks and there weren't all these healthy foods you could have. So it educated my mum and dad and obviously me, in, you know, in terms of, right, OK, you can't have that. You can't have this. And so there was some information, but clearly nothing like there is today. And it has changed a lot. I think, you know, the perception of someone with type 1 diabetes back then was that you couldn't eat sweets, whereas nowadays that's obviously completely different for the kids growing up with type 1. Yeah, absolutely. I'll be honest, all the way through, I've tried to sort of food-wise live as normal life as possible. And I think this, you know, it hasn't stopped me doing anything. And as time's gone on, I've, I think, you know, you've learned the impact that these foods can have on you and therefore how you best manage them, how you keep your glucose levels where they should be. There was undoubtedly some, some ups and downs over the years when it's not quite so easy to keep the, the balance and the seesaw in check. But yeah, no, it's so, so much better nowadays. Sounds like that might be a funny story there. Have you got any that you can? Well, yeah, there's, um, there's a few. I remember when I was at college, so sort of age 16, I got a job working for Southend Council on the seafront, putting all the, the deck chairs out and doing a bit of gardening and this and that. And my nan gave me this sort of metal box that had loads of sugar cubes in it. So I had a couple of occasions where um, I got quite low and hypos. And um, I can remember going to this metal box and taking out these sugar cubes, almost subconsciously thinking, right, I've got to do this, I've got to do this. And then south in seafront, deck chairs are laid out. And my boss came to find me sort of, sat lying in the deck chair on the seafront as the sun's out and it's like Phil what the hell are you do Phil oh, don't worry I'm just having my sugar cubes I'm, I'll be all right in a minute and that was um yeah one little story of um me trying to manage it and one of the one of the little downs <laughs> well you definitely were uh, making the most of the south end pier and, and the beach yeah, on yeah, that day. Yeah. <laughs> can you tell us about chatting about your type one one night in a cinema and how that changed your life um, yeah, it did. So what was I, age 17? I asked this girl, Paula, out for a date. And as you do, we, we went off to the pictures and um, we went to see a film called um, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. And obviously, you know, very keen to make an impression and what have you. So we were, um, as you do, we were sat towards the back of the cinema, 
chatting away, all good. And little did we know it, it was a film with um, subtitles. And because we were trying to make an impression on one another, she didn't wear her glasses. And so we couldn't see what was going on in the film. So we just, you know, started asking questions of one another. And, you know, pretty soon it got onto the subject of the diabetes. And Paul was like, oh, what's, what does that mean? What is that all about? Yeah. And so, um, you know, we, uh, we, went on future dates and eventually we got married and we're still um, still together now. And so we've got two kids of 18 and 21. So I, I always sort of say to people, um, yeah, if it hadn't been for my diabetes and talking about it, you know, I'm not sure I'd be where I am now, really. It was, it, it was um, yeah, funny how life turns out. I mean, that's the one thing I would say to anybody really is talk about it. I would say that sort of over my life with it, it's only ever have been a sort of a huge benefit, really. People generally, they're interested. They want to know about it. I mean, even today with all the information out there, I, I do think you do need to educate people. But I would I would say talk about it and don't be afraid to um, tell people about it either. And you touched on it there. And I mean, moving on to your career as a TV producer, you must have noticed how TV has portrayed diabetes has changed. There has been a massive, a massive difference. And I really noticed that, yeah, it's moved on hugely. I do think there's much more of a, an understanding now, definitely. Something else that's really rapidly changed in the last five, ten years is technology and obviously the emergence of new devices and products. How do you think that's changed your experience with diabetes? Yeah, the changes have been massive, to be honest. In recent years, it's life-changing. You know, I've... Um, my mates always laugh and they sort of describe me as the the, the bionic man <laughs> because I've got, you know, one thing in one arm and I've got another thing in another arm and, you know, not doing five or six jabs a day and having a, a pump has been an incredible change. And then similarly, the likes of the Freestyle Libre system. I mean, that for me has been huge because of the job I do, having the ability to sort of check my levels all of the time has been massive and so I would say it is genuinely been life-changing in the sort of the few years since I've transformed over in recent in recent years. Technology plays a massive part in the job that you do as well you know being an award-winning yeah. TV sports producer. How did you get started into that industry? I've always you know been interested in sport and it was always my dream to somehow get into the sports industry if I could. I left university and for 18 months I worked for, bizarrely, I worked for a firm of American architects who had a big project in London at Liverpool Street Station. And I was basically just in the admin office and what have you. And, and during the time, it was a dreadfully boring job. And during the time, I used to just um, sending out CVs and calling up people and seeing what I could get. And then one of the last calls I made was to BBC Elstree, where EastEnders is made, actually, now. And they said, oh, we haven't got a sport department. You need to speak to X. And I got a reply back saying, sorry, nothing going, the usual response. And then I came home from working at the Architects one day. My mum said, oh, you've got a phone call. And to cut a long story short, they, they had a clerk's job in the admin office that nobody within the BBC had applied for. My CV, having been told there was nothing going in, in sport, was sent down to the personnel department. 
and the lady in personnel, she was a friend of the manager of BBC Sport and she didn't file my CV and sent it up to this lady called Ella and said, oh, look, I mean, it's quite funny nowadays. We said, oh, look, this guy looks as though he can actually use a computer. Aren't you looking for a clerk? So she said, oh, yeah, 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 I am, I am. And then she rang me. I didn't go into work the next day. I went straight to the BBC uh, in the morning and um, was sort of offered this clerk's job there and then, and that was 1989. And then once you're in, you can work your way through the system. And, you know, I went like a sort of management assistant and then as a floor manager, then assistant producer and producer and senior producer to where I am now. So my current my current job I got around 20 odd years ago and you know even to this day I sort of pinch myself and think you know if that lady in uh, personnel had filed my CV I um, you know I wouldn't be sat here now talking to you probably. No it's amazing and I think those stories always are aren't they of how people get into TV sometimes as a bit of luck somewhere along the line. (laughs) Yeah absolutely absolutely. So it's taken you around the world to some really amazing events. What's been one of the highlights for you? I've been so, so lucky and sort of as a sports fan, even now sort of, you know, pinched myself. I don't think you could ever and you should ever get blasé about these things. But I, I think it'd be so difficult to pick out a highlight because I've worked on every Football World Cup since 1994. Been lucky to work on a few Olympic Games as well. London 2012 is the the obvious highlight there every morning and you're directing the programs you know what you're doing is having such an impact on people and that is such a privilege and yes yes it can be pressurized at times but you know you're just sort of so so lucky that you know every call you make you know is being watched by people and and then sort of other sports as well you know I was able to work on the likes of sort of Mike Tyson and Frank Bruno's world heavyweight fight in Las Vegas. And yeah, it's just so, so lucky, really, with what I've done. And even to this day, as you can probably gather, I still, you know, I still count myself incredibly fortunate and I love it. No, completely. And hopefully you'll see England win a World Cup before you well, retire. <laughs> well, the, the, the funny thing is that, as you might have gathered from me talking about dates over this podcast, I was born in 1966 which, of course, was the last time that England won the World Cup. And I was a few months old, apparently sat in my uh, chair in front of the World Cup final. And since then, you know, I've been close to tears coming out of the OB trucks after England have lost on penalties yet again, thinking, you know, could I be involved in, you know, the TV programme where England win a major event? And, you know, to be able to direct a World Cup final, I mean, that is the ultimate. And it hasn't quite happened yet. Well, we've got everything crossed. And talking of that, I mean, obviously, with you directing sporting events, how do you feel watching them on the TV at home when you put the cricket on? Well, it's perfect because um, I can sit at home and put the sport on and sort of my wife, Paula, can walk in. Oh, I've got to watch this. It's my job, you know. So um, and then off, off she'll go again. And me and my son will be sat there watching another match or something. And, um, yeah, it's fair to say um, we watch a lot of sport. Uh, what I would say is I can take a step back. And, of course, you're watching it, you know, you're watching it to see what, you know, competitors are doing and you're sort of trying to sort of learn things and you're trying to sort of think, right, how can we progress our coverage and what can we do next? But basically, as you might have 
gathers from what I said earlier, you know, I'm from um, Essex and from the South End area. So my team is South End United and South End United are currently towards the bottom of the football league and never on television. So that would trump everything if South End actually were to move up the leagues, appear on telly more. And, um, you know, I'm watching games on the internet every week of, you know, on the single camera. So it's fair to say professional standard coverage is not a major concern when they're on. <laughs> well, at least you can sit back and relax and watch it or not relax, maybe if it's your home I team. I'm watching South End at the moment, no, but um, <laughs> onwards and upwards. So I'm sure it can be quite a high pressure environment directing, especially live sport, because obviously, as we know, anything can happen in live production. Yeah, yeah. Um, how do you cope with the diabetes around that? Because I've never known any different. I don't really think about it too much. And obviously, it's easier with the you know the technology we've got available nowadays. But it's just trying to keep on top of it as much as, as you can it's really important to do that and you know something like the world cup i'll be away from home you're working long hours every day so trying to ensure you you know you eat the right things you try and get a break and a, a bit of exercise and you will have blips i mean for example when i was working at the world cup in france in 98 we were rushing around the, the country doing some filming and we we're doing some filming with a brazilian team it was a really hot day and and I felt a bit odd. And the long and short of it is I sort of decided to have a, a bit of a sit down behind the goal in front of all these thousands of Brazilian fans and French fans. And Garth Crooks, who used to play for Spurs, who was the reporter I was working with, ran off back to the car to get me some glucose and a, a bottle of Coke or whatever. And then sort of 10 minutes later and I'm fine again. But I'm so lucky and fortunate on these events. And I think, you know, it has come from talking about it and pretty much everybody I work closely with is aware of, you know, me having type one. And so, you know, it's little things like I'll rock up into the office and I'll go and get me lunch from the fridge and I'll find out that the team have put a few bottles of drink in there for me. And, you know, in Russia, I got really bad food poisoning and I was really struggling because it coincided with my um, test being low and what have you. And our head of production and Debbie and a, a senior floor manager, Chris, who are sort of good friends of mine, they noticed I was an hour late for work, basically come into the hotel room, sorted me all out and things like that. And you sort of think, you know, that is so, so lucky that when you do have the very, very occasional blips that there's, there's good people around who can help you. And who else can you turn to if you're having a challenging day? Who's your go-to? Um, yeah, my wife. My wife, she's, she's, you know, I don't know how many hypos over the years she must have uh, lived through. And, you know, because you do, she says, you you sort of turn into a, a different person a little bit. And, you, you know, apparently I can't believe it, but she says I'm incredibly stubborn and argumentative, <laughs> which um, I find really hard to believe. Yeah, so, yeah, she's the person probably that I would turn to. And now the kids are older, sort of 18 and 21. So they now understand and know what they need to do. So finally, Phil, is there any advice that you'd like to give to someone living with diabetes? You know, type one is invisible. People wouldn't know you've got it. So I would just urge people again, please don't be afraid to talk about it. It will only help you. I've never had a bad experience from telling people what I've got. People tend to be genuinely interested and want to understand if they can. 
basically, yes, of course, you've got to be careful and manage the diabetes, but ultimately it doesn't have to stop you doing anything. Well, thank you so much, Phil. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and learning about all the different productions that you've brought to us on the TV. And if you want more information about living with diabetes, then check out our fantastic education site, Freestyle Progress. There you can find the Freestyle Libre Academy, tutorial videos, webinars, the rest of this podcast series and lots more. That's all online at progress.freestylediabetes.co.uk. Thanks for listening and see you next time. The information provided is not intended to be used for medical diagnosis or treatment or as a substitute for professional medical advice. Please consult your physician or qualified health provider regarding your condition and appropriate medical treatment. Individual symptoms, situations and circumstances may vary.